This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. As we head into flu shot season, it's time to mark a grim centennial from the time before vaccines and penicillin. This week marks the 100th anniversary of the flu pandemic that killed up to 100 million people. And to screen or not to screen, we look into the controversial mammogram debate in this Breast Cancer Awareness Month. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Canadians are being asked to set aside half an hour to have their say on cancer care in this country. The Canadian Partnership Against Cancer is launching an online campaign called 30 Minutes That Matter, aimed at having people share their experiences about cancer to shape how prevention, screening and care are delivered over the next decade. People living with cancer, caregivers and anyone who knows someone with cancer are encouraged to participate. They drink and they smoke, so why are people in Spain living so long? And a new report says the Spanish are projected to have the world's longest life expectancy in 2040 to 85.9 years. Spain will edge out Japan, which has long held that distinction. Singapore, Switzerland and Portugal round out the top five. By 2040, life expectancy in Canada will rise to 83.1 but will fall in the rankings to 27th. And the U.S. is set to take a big fall in the ratings and be overtaken by China. The study is published in The Lancet. The first female Supreme Court justice in the U.S. is withdrawing from public life after revealing she has dementia. 88-year-old Sandra Day O'Connor released a public letter this week outlining her diagnosis, saying she's in the early stages of the disease. Well wishes instantly flooded social media with many thanking her for her inspiring work and her bravery in sharing her diagnosis. A 99-year-old Norwegian war hero has died. Joachim Roneberg was the last survivor of a team that helped stop the Nazis from building an atomic bomb. In 1943, three years after the Nazis invaded Norway, Roneberg led a secret mission of six men who daringly parachuted behind enemy lines. They broke into a chemical weapons factory and blew it up crippling the Nazis' ability to produce bombs. It wasn't until 1945 Roneberg realized the significance of their mission when bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Then we knew that what we had done had had been of great importance. Their mission was made into a movie in 1965 called The Heroes of Telemark. 
The Golden Girls now have their own cereal. American pop culture toy company Funko is putting the iconic TV women on one of its collectible cereal boxes, complete with a toy inside. A company spokesman says the idea behind the campaign is to put the fun back into Saturday mornings. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Tuesday, October 15th. Fair. Feeling very miserable. Head aching. Stomach in bad shape and chest bad. Managed to give my 10 a.m. lecture, but spent afternoon over the fire at the Union. Crawled home in the evening and got into bed. Wednesday, October 16th. Feeling very sick with chest and stomach. Miss McMurray came in to see me in the evening. Missed my lecture for the first time since I've begun to deliver the same. That's from the diary of Edward Arda, who was lucky enough to survive the flu pandemic of 1918 here in Toronto. This month marks its 100th anniversary, and it was at its worst this very week. The flu pandemic is often considered the deadliest event in human history, killing between 50 and 100 million people. Neil Orford is behind a major project to commemorate the history of this tragedy in Canada. That's a pretty wide range between 50 and 100 million. Can't we nail it down a little closer to the actual number? Boy, I wish we could. Um, it's not uh, that simple. What we have learned through the research, of course, Libby, is that the statistics associated with calculating the numbers of death, both those who were afflicted by it and those who ultimately succumbed to it, is a very inaccurate science. The statistics are not clear. Globally, we have many nations that didn't keep the kinds of statistics that uh, we kept in the British Empire. And at the time, of course, for a long period of time, the influenza itself was not a disease that was reportable. Many countries were not in a position to declare it a, a cause of death. And so they called it pneumonia or bronchial pneumonia, a number of different things. It's really difficult to nail down. So apparently... Up to half a billion people were actually infected with it. We believe, yes. It has also been called the Spanish flu, but no one believes that it originated in Spain. No, it's one of those uh, great misnomers in history that uh, I'm sure the Spanish people uh, regret deeply, and historians also regret now, certainly in the 21st century. But Spain was a neutral country in the First World War, and the occurrence of the flu was just uh, the same in Spain as it was anywhere else. But because they didn't have wartime censorship, the reporters uh, felt no restrictions in reporting on what was going on and the outbreak uh, in Spain. And so around the world, it was picked up as an influenza outbreak that was really, really enormous in Spain. However, of course, it was happening everywhere else. Countries were just not at liberty to report on it the way they were in neutral countries like Spain. And they wouldn't report on it because they thought that would give an advantage to the enemy. Precisely. It spread very rapidly, killing 25 million people in just the first six months? Yes. And and we, we we're at a point where we believe that could be a conservative estimate, given the outbreaks in China, the outbreaks in India, places that we really don't have a good handle on the numbers. We think that could be even a conservative estimate. And was it some kind of super virus or was it just a variant of the influenza that we still battle today? 
Well, it's a great question, and it's one that's baffled uh, epidemiologists and virologists for the last hundred years. The actual virus was not fully identified until the 1930s. And what we believe is that it was a variant of the H1N1 that we currently have going around quite frequently. It's avian in origins. But the conditions of the First World War certainly caused an incubation of something that was very, very substantially different from what had been seen in the world before. It's really impossible to say whether this kind of H1N1 would break out again, given the factors that were associated with the war that that really contributed to it. This did not kill most of the people who were infected with it, correct? That's right. So the death rate still was about 20%. That's pretty high. Well, it is. And, and of course, we have to take into consideration this is before penicillin. This is before uh, the kinds of antibacterial drugs that were available even by the 1930s. Most of the people succumbed to secondary infections as a result of getting the flu. And the distance between getting the flu and succumbing to those secondary infections was often very small. It was uh, a very short period of time. What did they use to treat it? <laughs> well, uh, we, have, uh, we have done some great research and, of course, found all kinds of home remedies. And, you know, we might call them quackery today. But I think we have to be fair and give due credit to the context of the times and the desperation that many people felt that some of the home remedies, some of the traditional remedies that came uh, associated with other cultures from around the world were treated very seriously by the people at the time. And so while it might look a little on the quackery side today, people took them very seriously at the time, but they certainly had minimal impact upon the pace of the pandemic. I've read that at the time, medical authorities recommended large doses of aspirin, up to 30 grams a day, and that might actually have contributed to the deaths. Yeah, there's some research on that, particularly in the United States, where this was recommended. What finally ended the pandemic? It ran its course, and likely the end of the war contributed to it. But as well, people's uh, behavior had significantly changed. And in Canada, we had developed management practices associated with public health, which also mitigated the end of it. And so people's habits were beginning to change very rapidly, almost as rapidly as the flu itself. And their understanding of how to keep proper hygiene and how to uh, take care of one's personal health changed. And then the federal government created the um, Ministry of Health, the Department of National Health in 1919, which had a really important effect upon taking management of communicable diseases from sort of an individual treatment to a more of a community base. And that's where public health in Canada really started. And I hesitate to say it's thanks to the flu pandemic, but I think we can trace the emergence of robust and effective public health in Canada back to the impact of the flu pandemic. Okay. Neil Orford, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Olivia. Really appreciate it. That was award-winning high school history teacher Neil Orford, who works with Defining Moments Canada. For more information, go to definingmomentscanada.ca. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, a contrary view on the effectiveness of mammograms. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. 
As we mark the end of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, here is a contrarian view of breast screening. For decades, we've been told that mammograms save lives. And the backlash was huge when a major study in 2014 found that was not necessarily true. The emotional force of that reaction prompted René Pellerin to write Conspiracy of Hope. We did a story on that particular study which showed that mammograms were not doing a very good job of saving lives. And I was surprised at the level of anger in response. And I thought, wait, this is a piece of science. People don't usually respond that way to science. And I decided to investigate what was behind all of that emotion. So that led me to eventually say, you know, I think I need to write a book about this because the whole history of mammogram screening and the debate and so on is really fascinating. And the debate has been going on for 50 years. My reading of that study was that there are harms associated with mammograms, but the conclusion still was not stop the screening. No, I think the conclusion in the study was that this public policy about screening should be reviewed, and I think that's basically where I come down in the book as well, that uh, in terms of public policy, the idea that one size fits all and everybody is treated exactly the same is maybe not the best policy. Some people may benefit from screening. Some people may do well with fewer screens. Some people may not need screening. We're getting to the point, I think, where we're starting to ask those questions. But the point of the book is to let women know that there are both harms and benefits to screening, and they should know about the harms. And we're rarely told the detail about what the potential risks are. So I'm just I'm arguing in the book, essentially, that women should be able to make an informed choice. Refresh our memory. Okay. So I think we're familiar with false positives, which is you go to get a mammogram and you end up being recalled and you end up perhaps getting a biopsy and going through all of that and then you're told, no, you're fine, you don't have cancer. Uh, Recall rates, if you go for screening regularly for 10 years... Are about 25% recall rates. Yeah. Uh, The other harm that we're aware of is a false negative, which... It means that you've been told you're fine and you may not be fine. And that false sense of security may lull you into not worrying about whether you have breast cancer or potential for breast cancer, and you may not be examining your own breasts, etc. But the more serious harm that I think is becoming better known is the issue of overdiagnosis. Overdiagnosis is when you detect something in the breast that you may not feel, but because mammograms can detect it, you've found a cancer, but it may be a cancer that will lurk there for the rest of your life and you may never know it, it may never grow, and may never cause any problems. It can happen in as many as 30% of all mammography diagnosed breast cancers. The problem is that at this point, we don't know which ones will become full-blown disease and which ones will be nothing, and that's why it's all being treated. At the same time, there is research that's now underway to try to make those distinctions. Yes, and that's really encouraging research that's going on, which may help us to find screening policies a little bit more, to fine-tune them a little bit more to individuals rather than to mass population screening. You say in your book that breast cancer screening is a huge industry involving charities, radiologists, manufacturing, 
and public screening programs. Tell me a bit about that. In British Columbia, it costs about $20 million a year. In Ontario, it's uh, almost impossible to get the figures because screening programs and what's done in hospitals, they're not calculated separately, but it would be more than what happens in British Columbia. That's $20 million just for the cost of the screening program. If evidence is showing that early detection doesn't work nearly as well as we think it should, that's a big ship to try to turn around. It perhaps doesn't work as well as people think, but it does work to some extent. Screening can reduce mortality, perhaps by 30%, perhaps by 15%, but we have to remember that the mortality rate is much lower than we think it is. Only 3% of women will ever die of breast cancer. Most of us will die of something else. It comes at a cost, which is the harms for many for the benefit of a few. And I think that's what women need to understand so that they can make a choice based on their own preferences, their own fear of the disease, and so on. Okay, Renee Pellerin, thanks so much. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. That was Renee Pellerin, author of Conspiracy of Hope. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, a bit of Canadiana. An iconic sports song is getting its turn in the spotlight this weekend. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. It's time for your International Arts Datebook. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. A new exhibit featuring major works by the leading artists of the 1960s has opened at Buffalo's Albright Knox Art Gallery. It's considered the most culturally and politically significant period of the 20th century when artists began exploring pop art and later performance and video art. The exhibit runs until January 6th. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Early Christmas shoppers won't want to miss the UK's acclaimed Winter Art and Antiques Fair, browse over 20,000 one-of-a-kind items from the UK's top dealers on everything from diamonds to furniture, ceramics, and textiles. It runs until November 4th at the National Hall of Olympia in London. It's a museum for dummies. Ventriloquist Jeff Dunham is one of many who's donated sidekick dolls to the Vent Haven Museum in Kentucky, the only museum in the world dedicated to ventriloquism. It houses over 900 figures. Love pizza and planning a trip to New York City? When the moon hits your eye like a bigger pizza pie. That's... The mouthwatering pop-up pizza exhibit hosts paintings, sculptures, and even a pizza guitar. The Museum of Pizza features work by a group of artists, each with their own unique take on the art of the slice. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. This weekend, the late Canadian icon Stompin' Tom Connors was honoured as his famous song, the hockey song, was inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. The hockey song is currently celebrating its 45th anniversary. Released in 1973, it quickly became a rousing anthem heard throughout arenas across the National Hockey League. So, 
In a fitting setting, a special ceremony before last night's Leafs game, the son of Stomp and Tom Connors, Tom Jr., and the rest of the family were presented with a special plaque to honor Stomp and Tom and his iconic song. Right now, we'll hear the song that was sung last night at Toronto's Scotiabank Arena and at countless hockey games before and one still to come. Here is the hockey song. We're on the air. It's hockey night tonight. That was Stompin' Tom Connors with the hockey song. Last night, the song was inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame in a special ceremony before the Leafs game at Scotiabank Arena here in Toronto. Stompin' Tom passed away in 2013 at the age of 79. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. Produced by Christine Ross, Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.